that I am handing over the introduction of our speaker to Carol. Thank you all so much for being here. I met our speaker, Betsy, last night in the parking lot, really, but, <laughs> but I had been speaking with her over texts and mostly emails for probably a year, maybe even two years, the first time I contacted her. Um, Betsy arrived here last night, and she has with her her wonderful husband, Will, and her best friend, Debbie. And she has 31 years in the program. She has a sponsor. She has a home group, maybe two home groups. And she's a warm and open person. So help us welcome Betsy Shepherd as our speaker. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Carol. Thank you. It's great to be here. After Sue read her two pages, I thought, you know what? I don't really need to tell my story. She sort of told it for me. <laughs> but thank you. That was great. Um, I want to thank several people. I want to thank Monica and Carol for being my contact people and for putting some great, great yummies in my room. Unfortunately, I'm doing a little Weight Watcher right now, so I kept scanning the points of all the wonderful things she gave me. It was like, oh, no. Um, and I, I want to thank Sabina for opening her home last night for all the speakers, and Monica for preparing a delicious meal. That was above and beyond, so thank you. I want to thank um, my husband, Will, and my friend, Debbie, for driving me on, I mean, being on this road trip with me. And one of the things that a bunch of us do in our recovery community is if, if uh, they'll pay me $5 if I say their name from the podium. So <laughs> thank you. <laughs> there you go. Um, I also want to thank the organizers of this conference. We have a conference similar. I'm, I, okay, I'm Betsy. And I am a grateful member of Al-Anon. I've been in the program 31 years, uh, January 1988. And um, so I was about 40 then, and so I'm 71 now. And uh, I keep coming back. I have a home group and a sponsor who's been my sponsor from the very beginning. She's now 88 years old and just moved from Eugene to Bend. But we've been texting and communicating, so um, I feel very grateful for that. I sponsor women myself, and uh, I, I just feel really grateful that we have an event here that is about this, as we heard in the readings, a family disease. And, uh, you know, it's not just about the active drinker. It's about the disease that affects all of us. And so to be a part of an AA-sponsored event and an Al-Anon person is just great. I, I noticed a wonderful Al-Anon uh, literature booth out there. We have great literature. And I also know that the Al-Anons did the dessert last night. And you know what? We know how to feed and take care of alcoholics. <laughs> we are good at that. So I'm sure you enjoyed the dessert last night. Um, and the theme is we admitted we were powerless. And uh, that's perfect for me because 
I'm powerless and have been powerless over this family disease. And I didn't think I was, but I'll, you know, I tried really hard. And I'm also, you know, you heard in the reading, powerless over the relationships. You know, I'm a, I'm, my drug of choice are people. And I really struggled with that. And so uh, it's perfect. And I wanted to read something very briefly from one of our pieces of literature, How Al-Anon Works. And I heard Ellen Cassidy once, a circuit speaker for Al-Anon, talk about this particular book, How Al-Anon Works for Families and Friends of Alcoholics. And she compared it to the big book in AA, that it's as important. And you know, I find wonderful things in here all the time after all these years. But on page 46, I'm just going to read um, a couple of sentences. And it's under step one, under powerlessness. And it says, the battle against alcoholism has become the basis for many of our relationships. Putting an end to this battle requires completely redefining what we believe about ourselves, about others, and our relationship. Those of us who learn to control whatever we could in order to survive in an alcoholic environment now continue to try to control everything and everybody without realizing what we are doing. Our relationships are damaged and our lives become even more unmanageable. Thus, even when there are no alcoholics directly involved, the effects of alcoholism continue to dominate. So that says it pretty well for me. Uh, so, you know, the template for doing this is how it, how it was, what happened, and how it is today. And before I talk about uh, how it was, I want to talk very briefly about how it is today. And the reason that I do that is I've shared my story a few times, and I sometimes get really bogged down in how it was. And then I run out of time. And um, it's sort of the Al Anon version of a drunkologue. And I would like to not do that, so I'm going to try to keep on track. And so how is it today? I don't live with the disease today, the active disease. Uh, I live, and people will say to me, well, why do you keep coming? Because, you know, the active disease was in my home until 2001, so, you know, I keep on coming. And I say, and if my friend Debbie mentioned this this morning in our sharing meeting, but I believe this, I come because, you know, people say in meetings, well, I come, my son is my qualifier, my husband is my qualifier, but the truth is, I'm my qualifier. I came here, it was the last house on the block, and I was, I was crazy. My life was unmanageable, and I was really crazy. And so um, today, I live with myself, and so I keep coming. It's my spiritual practice. It's what I do. And um, I live with gratitude on a daily basis. I, I have a life that I, I didn't get what I came here for to get that person sober. I didn't get that. But I got a lot, lot more, more than I could have ever imagined in my little brain. And I got improved relationships. And, and you know, I had it turned around, and I'll talk more about this, but I put others. You all were first. That's who was most important. And I began to learn as I came into Al-Anon that no, actually, higher power is first. Myself is next, and then the rest of you are, are after that. 
And that was a long and slow learning process for me. So, how, um, so that's how it is today. I have an approved relationship with a higher power, deep personal relationship. I have a much more self-awareness and self-love of myself and much healthier relationships with the rest of the people around me. And I'm very grateful. So how it was, uh, all these things that happened, I didn't grow up in an alcoholic home. I uh, was born in Manhattan, Kansas, but pretty quickly moved to Columbus, Ohio, and I grew up there. Yes, I'm a Buckeye, and, uh, but I, I'm also a duck, because I'm from Eugene, Oregon, so I'm a duck. Um, and my father uh, was a Presbyterian minister uh, in a big downtown successful you know, high-powered church, so he was the senior pastor there. He was in his, very young, in his 30s. I was the youngest of three um, children. I had a four-year-older sister and then an eight-year-older brother. And my sister pretty much took up all the energy in the family. Um, she was kind of wild and crazy, and just everybody was concerned about Diane. And uh, Unfortunately, in her 20s, she was diagnosed bipolar and schizophrenic. And so I don't think that was necessarily what was going on at the earlier age, because it was a later diagnosis. But it was kind of crazy. So my job was to keep things harmonious and be happy and be good. And then, of course, as a minister and a minister's wife, that was my, that was my mom's job, they helped everybody. Everybody came first, you know. 24-7, they were available to help others, to solve problems, to be a listening ear. So I, I learned that. That was sort of what I learned. And the, a real defining moment for me in that childhood was my mother um, was diagnosed with uterine cancer. And so they, uh, in those days, used cobalt and radium treatment, which was very extreme. And she was in her 30s and had instant menopause and didn't get hormones and went through a breakdown. And uh, she went to a sanitarium. I was about six. So for three years, she was with the breakdown in this uh, sanitarium. The good news is she lived till 86. They got the cancer, and she was able to uh, recover from that. And, but I was a young child, and I didn't know what was going on. My mother was gone. I saw her twice in three years. They sort of told me, but in those days they didn't really, I mean, I knew, but you know, I made up stories and I de developed some imprints on how to, to parent myself. And one of those was, uh, I began to develop stories and scripts. And my script was, I'm gonna be happy, I'm gonna be good, I'm gonna not be crazy like my sister, and I'm gonna, you know, uh, have girlfriends and I'm going to do well in school. And I did all of those things. I had very close friends. As a matter of fact, in a week and a half, I'm going back to visit in Ohio with, we're turning 71 and we're, nine of us from all around the country are going to get together. And some of them I've known since kindergarten. So, you know, I had a really good uh, group of women friends and that's sort of been consistent through my life. Um, and my sister was an adolescent, so let's, is Diane okay? Is she okay? And, oh, Betsy seems fine. She's happy. And so, you know, I, I just sort of began to, the stories I told were I'm hardworking, I'm self-reliant, and don't love people too much. My parents really did. They were wonderful. It wasn't this uh, 
what do I want to say, evangelical, angry, God kind of upbringing, I, I, they were, I had a good relationship or belief in God. I, I didn't have a relationship, really. And uh, they loved me, but gosh, I love them, and I love my mother, and she's gone. So, you know, I'm not going to open my heart too much and love too much because people will go away. My dad was real busy, senior pastor. He tried to parent us as best he could. But I learned about men, you know, if they're busy or they got too much on their plate, don't bother them. Just don't bother Excuse me. Don't bother them. And so that's sort of what I, I began to learn and that don't open your heart too much, don't be vulnerable, don't be with someone that's really available because those emotions were too big. They were just too big for this little girl. So I was happy. I went, I went through school, I graduated from high school and you know, sort of sailed along and was feeling pretty happy. And then I uh, met a man that, I actually re-met a man, I'd known his family, they were part of our church and a wonderful family. And um, he had gone off to college and I went off to college and then his sister, who was my roommate, uh, reintroduced me to him and we fell in love. Um, that was uh, about 1968. So here we were, it was the 60s. We had a first date, and he taught me how to drink shots with beer. And I had, that should have been a red flag, but you know, I didn't, I hadn't done that before. So, uh, and we, we really did fall in love. We had similar values and so much in common. Uh, families that knew one another, the same community, and, uh, and it was the 60s. So we began to use drugs and alcohol, and we had a good time. We spent the summer of 1969 in San Francisco. I mean, that's a great time to be in San Francisco in the summer of 69. And uh, eventually got married in 1970, and he had one more year of law school back at Ohio State. And then we, our plan was to move west. And then I got pregnant, and the family thought, oh, you're not moving now with a grandchild on the way. And we said, yes, we are. So we left after he finished law school in our blue and white Volkswagen bus with our worldly belongings, which really one of my favorites was our orange shag rug that we <laughs> rolled up and carried from Ohio Oregon, and we landed in Eugene, Oregon. And uh, so the marriage was a happy one, and my first son was born, and two and a half years later, our second son was born, and we created a life, and it was a good life in many, many ways. He, he eventually became head of a large law firm helping indigent folks, and uh, I was an educator, and I was um, working on an advanced degree, had two small children, you know, we, things were good, but I just sort of noticed that there was more drinking than I had, I wasn't, I just didn't know about heavy drinking, you know, and I didn't like it, so I went to see a counselor, I don't think he had background in alcoholism, but the counselor, <laughs> this was great, he, I, I, so good for me, I went to a counselor and I said, you know, I'm kind of worried about my husband's drinking. And he said, well, okay, here's what I'd like you to do. For the next two weeks, I want you to keep a journal of 
all the drinking he does. Well, that was like music to my ears, you know, <laughs> to an Al-Anon. And then he said, and then I'd like you to keep track of your schedule all day long, morning, noon, night, you know, for two weeks. And I came back in two weeks, and he looked at my husband's drinking log that I had meticulously kept, and uh, he said, well, he looks like he's a social drinker. Now, I don't know whether, whether that was a disservice or not, but then he looked at my schedule, and he went, this is insane. He just, and there I was already starting to keep real busy, uh, don't think about things, you know. And it's still today, 31 years later, it is still, you can ask my dear husband, it's still a challenge for me to not overdo and keep busy. That's, that's one of my, um, I understand now why I do that, and I have much clearer understanding of myself, but it's one of those that will show up for me. So then, the, you know, the, the fact that the, the disease began to take hold, there was some craziness, and again, I don't want to do the Al-Anon drunkalog, except to say that I got really crazy. I mean, sometimes those of us in Al-Anon know that we can look more crazy than the person drinking, you know, the kinds of things that we do. And I did some of those, you know. I wanted to, I never was into suicide, but I was into homicide, and I really sometimes wanted to kill him, really kill him. And I, you know, one night, and we didn't do this. That's the other thing. We didn't do this in front of our children. We were high-functioning Al-Anons and alcoholics. He went to work. I didn't enable. I never called, you know. Um, but that night, I think the kids must not have been there because I was chasing him around. I wanted to kill him with a fireplace poker. I mean, I was going to... I, I just thought my life would be so much better if he wasn't there anymore. And uh, I jumped out of a, a moving car once on the way home from an event. It was moving slowly, but I did jump out and walked home from quite a distance, quite a distance. Um, I wrote letters. Don't you understand? You know, I do this tearful letters. I cry. Sometimes I tried that if you can't beat them, join them. I drink right along with them. You know, so I tried lots and lots of things to control. And uh, it just became clear that something really strange was going on. And so um, in 1987, I was an educator, Christmas break came back after the holidays, and at least where, what in my life, I didn't talk to my close friends that, or even my family that there was a problem with drinking. I didn't say that at all. But uh, we were having coffee, several of us, and a friend of mine uh, was talking about her Christmas holidays. And it sounded really similar to mine, you know, the wrapping the presents at Christmas Eve after the alcoholic. He never went to parties and did things like that. He'd just come home, we'd have dinner, and then he'd drink and drink and sort of fall asleep. So I was the one mostly affected, but, you know, he didn't help on Christmas Eve because he was gone, fall asleep, you know. And uh, so I approached, her, I approached her after that, just very quietly. I said, do you struggle with your husband's drinking? It was just this little question. She said, yeah, I do. 
and we made a pact to go to Al-Anon together. We wouldn't tell our husbands or anything, but we were going to go, and that's what we did, January of 1988. And so. You know, for that, like I said, my sons were 16 and 13, I was 40, and I'm still coming. Because when I got in those rooms, I felt like I'd found a home, you know, and people. I didn't have to keep that all secret anymore. And then I said, you know, what was really important was that thing I shared earlier, that I began to understand the right order of relationships. I had flawed thinking and I had unhealthy uh, relationships. And it was that God, myself, others. And you know, uh, again, I didn't have a big stumbling block with higher power or God, partly because of my upbringing. Uh, but today I have a different kind of relationship with a higher power. But with myself, you told me to keep the emphasis on myself. And so um, I began to understand that right order. And then I heard this from Beverly B. Maybe she's been here to these conferences. But the alphabet, I began to learn the alphabet of recovery. And I love this because it was like the slogans. I had something I could grab onto. You know, you talked to me about doing all the steps. At the very beginning, it was like, oh my goodness. But these, these, these alphabets, so, you know, one that I heard at my first meeting are the three C's. You, you didn't cause it, you can't cure it, and you can't control it. That was like, wow, because he had, he had always said, if you would just get off my back, I wouldn't drink so much. So on some level, I really believed, I think I did, that I'd caused it. And certainly I couldn't control it, all the things I tried. And, um, and I knew I couldn't cure it. I heard another one, the three M's, mothering, managing, and manipulating. It's like, wow, that's me. That really resonated. You know, we Al-Anons look good. I was just talking to someone down there. You know, when you look at the family disease, the alcoholics sometimes look much worse. We're, we're more self-righteous and we look good. But boy, can you manipulate things, you know, in this way that's very powerful and very controlling. So I love that one. The three A's, awareness, acceptance, action. I began to get, I always liked self-help books and things, even before I came into the program. So I really felt like I had some awareness of myself. But then I wanted to jump to that action. I'm very action-oriented. But that acceptance step, I've come to realize that's a slow, long process of growth for me. Halt. Hungry, angry, lonely, tired. I, I had more, I, I, you know, the thing, that overworking and just this adrenaline thing, I didn't really understand. And when you told me to do some self-care, that was helpful. Wait. I don't know if you've heard that one. Why am I talking? <laughs> and for me, that was really good. You know, I would talk, if, if you just, if I just said it right, if you just understand, you know, why am I talking? I love that one. Uh, shame. We just heard this one the last few months. Should have already mastered everything. You know, this perfectionist, I should have, I'm not going to try because I should already know how to do it kind of thing. That's, I like that one. And then, of course, fear. False evidence appearing real which you probably heard, we just heard recently, future events already ruined, which is that worry. You know, they're already ruined. So 
don't, you know, just keep worrying. And uh, then the other one, of course, fuck everything and run. You've probably heard that one. Yeah. So um, a friend of mine at the time gave me a, 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 a card with a quote on it that, that has stayed with me. Uh, be willing to risk everything you hold precious for the truth inside of you. Be willing to risk everything you hold precious. Now, that was in the beginning of the recovery. Now, I, if I really understood what that meant, I'm not sure I would have stayed. But I did know I was willing. I did know that. And I did get a sponsor shortly after coming in. And as I said, she's my sponsor today. But I like to tell that I got her because I'm compliant and good. But I didn't ever use her for quite a while. And I didn't talk in meetings for probably over a year. And I'm a talker. But boy, this was like different, talking about something deep. And, and I cried a lot. So those old imprinted patterns that I mentioned earlier had created things in me that made it perfect for me to have married an alcoholic, even though I didn't grow up in alcoholism. You know, the obsessive thinking that we, we do and the worry the shutting down emotionally, that's, that's what became part of me. And minimizing, I did a lot of minimizing. I was self-reliant. I helped others, but I didn't tell much about myself, and which was interesting. You know, people would say, oh, you're like a counselor. You're so good at that, you know, but I, I really didn't, I wasn't honest about that. Um, so, and in Al-Anon, as in everything else, life continued to happen. And there were some defining moments. My dad died in 1994. And uh, I was very close to my dad, and so was my first husband. And uh, he was devastated. And you can imagine, we had been doing outpatient treatment and working full time and keeping it secret, of course, that we were doing outpatient treatment. And uh, boy, he was devastated by my dad's death. And so what did he do? He drank, and he was in a, in, you know, unavailable. He had the DTs, he came to the memorial service, but he, he could hardly be there. He called an alcohol, a recovering alcoholic every hour to try and not take a drink for another hour. And so, you know, that was a wake-up call. And, and then I was diagnosed with uterine cancer, just like my mother, in 1998. And fortunately, they had different treatment, and I didn't have to do chemo or radiation. It was very caught very early. But you know, you begin to sort of say, well, I knew that this disease was making me ill. It wasn't just creating illness in the alcoholic. And is this how I want to live? So, you know, there was a series of, we continued to be together, and he did several, um, outpatient, excuse me, inpatient treatments, two 90-day inpatient treatments. And uh, what I learned from those, I learned, uh, we, our topic this morning in our sharing meeting was detachment with love. And detachment came gradually for me. Sometimes it wasn't with love at all. But over time, you know, I learned about true boundaries, how to, you know, and... And so one of the things that happened in the family week of the first treatment center, it was in Atlanta, Georgia, for professionals. And they invited us to come. And my sons decided to come of their own accord. I didn't insist that they were both in college. It was, it was a horrible week. 
It was just a horrible week. Meetings or groups all day long, if any of you have done that, and you have the family, you have the, the siblings, you have the partners, you have, and one of them was all the families came together. And one family was selected to be on the stage, and then the case managers would work with that family. And my job in the family had been to keep all the balls in the air, everything was good, I took care of everything, and here was my family on stage in front of other people, completely collapsing. My two sons were screaming at each other, and we weren't a yelling family. My, my husband was angry at me, and I just sat there, and this case manager put her hand on my knee and said, this is what hitting bottom looks like for someone in Al-Anon. And it was true. I mean, I just saw everything that I had tried to manufacture and create fall apart. And uh, he went to a second treatment and when, uh, for 90 days in Oregon, and when they asked if we wanted to do family week, I was like, no. <laughs> and, and the truth was, I really was done. His sons were done, his work was done. He was the head of the, one of the largest law firms in Eugene. They had given him op options. When he came home from that first out inpatient, he was drunk within five days. After 90 days, he fell down the stairs at home. And then, the, the, you know, he, I realized after that the power of my enabling. I had been, I don't know, I, like I said, I didn't do the classic call in sick from work, but this, when I knew I was done, energetically, he knew that. We knew that. And his kid, and he was, he couldn't work. He had gotten a DUI. He wandered the streets with a brown paper bag. He lived in our home. We, we were separated. He lived in the, the home that we had because he wouldn't leave. And, you know, it was stunning, the power of the disease, the family disease. I don't mean just the... And so, um, you know, we had seven more years during those times, and he didn't drink, as far as I know, after that second uh, inpatient. But I knew things weren't going well when one night he, we were on the deck talking, and he said, you know, I'm not feeling that great, and I think I'm going to talk to my counselor about, I think I'd feel better if I just smoked some dope. What do you think? <laughs> and you know, if you're in Al-Anon, you just like, you're woo! And I just, you know, I had enough Al-Anon to say, I think you need to talk to your sponsor. And uh, I know that he continued, but what happened is we had grown so far apart. Even in those moments of sobriety, we just weren't able to be married anymore. And so... Um, we were separated. Now, some of the things that I did during the separations, these different, I had my own apartment at some point. I had still a lot of learning to do. He lived in the house, and, uh, you know, I'd taken care of all the bills and everything, and so he didn't, and so he'd come over periodically and hang a bag of bills on my apartment door, and the bad news is I paid him. So, I'd been in Al-Anon a long time, so this is a slow process, you know? And the other thing I'm not proud of, but it's true, and it's a big part of my story, is that I then, um, during those separations, had an affair with a married man, and 
Number one, if you told me that I would end up divorcing someone after 33 years, that wasn't my script. And having an affair with a married man wasn't my script. But what I learned, there are many things I learned during that time, but probably the most important thing I learned was that I kept wondering why my high school boyfriend, my college people, my first husband, and now this married man weren't available. Why did I not get people that weren't emotionally available? Well, what I realized is that I wasn't emotionally available. I wasn't. I was too, that little seven-year-old girl was too afraid to really open up and be vulnerable. And so um, I, I thought, the thing I thought about this, this married man was that um, he was open and kind and he didn't drink. And so, you know, it turns out he wasn't an alcoholic, he was an addict, and he was a sex addict, and I knew nothing about that. But there I was, again, picking people that weren't available. And so my picker was really broken. And uh, after 33 years, I did file for divorce, because the question I kept asking myself is, do I really want to grow old like this? with this person? And that was a really important question, and the answer was no. And so that was after being in the program many, many years. So, you know, no one ever said, leave this jerk, you know. <laughs> I just kept working the program, and it became clear that this was the direction my higher power wanted me to go. It was a difficult divorce, but I feel like I walked that with grace and dignity. and. Um, uh, I, I felt, even though it was my choice, I felt it was a very dark time for me. And I felt the loss of the grief. My sponsor always tells me to do my grief work. I liked what Katie said about the grief. You're, you're a grief sponsor. I, I like that a lot because, you know, I, the loss of a dream, the loss of an intact family, the loss, you know, it was very difficult. Um, and I said to my sponsor, I feel like I'm dying. And she said, you are. The old, your old self is dying, and uh, you're becoming someone different. You may look the same, or you know, whatever, but you, it's dying, and that was that was really helpful to me. Uh, my mom died during that time as well, and so there was a lot of grief. Probably the grief over my dad's death that I hadn't been able to really do because of trying to manage a person with the DTs, you know, and it was a pretty crazy time. So um, I got in the Al-Anon boat, and I really started to put the focus on myself. And the steps became a real a spiritual practice for me. And we talk about someone that was in the other program um, talking about exercising his non-drinking muscle his non-drinking muscle, and I had to begin to exercise my spiritual muscle and really, really look at it as a discipline. And then a big part of my story was intimacy with men. I mentioned that. You know, I wasn't available. My dad was busy, so don't bother people. Don't be too available. Don't open too much. And so I was done with intimacy with men. I was done. But God had other plans, and it was... Uh, the good news is it was God's script, not mine, because I hadn't done a real good job of scripting my life. And um, I had a friend, oh, I had a counselor who said, your next frontier is learning how to love a man and be loved in return. And that was 
wow, that's pretty scary to me. And I had a friend, and I had tea with her in 2002, and she said, she had seen me with a friend, and she said, when are you going to let Will know how you feel? And this is a person I'd known in the program. Between Will and Debbie and I, we have 84 years in Al-Anon. So I'd, I had known him through program. No, I mean, I'd still married, he was still married. No, absolutely no cognizance that I was, had interest in him, which is the good news, because when I had been in charge of my scripts and my plans, things hadn't gone real well. And, uh, you know, I, I said to her, what are you talking about? I wasn't joking. And then I realized that she was right. And so I thought to myself, he's a good friend. I'd known him for years. He was eight and a half years younger than I was. He was kind of quirky. You know, he'd come in, you know, and put his car keys down at the meeting, kind of jingle them and things, you know. And, but no romantic interest. And all of a sudden I realized I, I had a good friend that I didn't want to do the old script with. I didn't want to play games with. And I was going to be honest. Rigorous honesty is part of the Al-Anon program, too. And uh, so uh, I phoned him, and I, I'm sure I stumbled around, but said, you know, how I felt. And I didn't want it to hurt our friendship. And he was very quiet, and he, he got off the, we got off the phone. And I literally, literally had a panic attack. That was that little girl, so terrified that she had been that vulnerable and I called my sponsor, and she said, you know, you were honest, that's good. You know, and I, if any of you have had panic attacks, they, they're not fun. And I was really frightened. So my body was that little girl again. And uh, the next morning, he, he called and said he'd like to explore where this relationship might go. And so the good news is um, we did. <laughs> that's what we did. And... Uh, I think uh, we neither of us had blueprint for a healthy relationship. He had been married to an alcoholic. I had been married, you know. But we had program. We had program. And one of the things that I learned in program, you know that thing, intimacy, into, me, see? I began to learn about myself and what I, how I wanted to be in relationship with all of you. I learned about how to be intimate with a um, a sponsor. I learned how to be intimate in meetings. I learned how to be intimate with a higher power. I had an intimate relationship with a higher power. And so my sponsor said, here's how you think about a relationship. God is the roof. Your one wall wills the other wall. And the only way to each other is through God, not being just attached at the hip to each other. And I thought that was a beautiful Thing, and I, I think about that a lot today. Um, I stopped trying to manage the joy in my life, and I allowed myself to fully love, and, and we were married in 2005, so that's been a real important part of my story. Um, so how is it today? I, I just want to read a, a, a comic. Let me see how I'm doing here. Oh, I'm doing, I'm doing great. Okay, yay. So if you read Pearls Before Swine, if any of you read it, yeah, yeah. So this was from October 1st, 2018. This is a perfect Al-Anon. 
There's four frames, there's goat and there's rat. And in the first frame, goat says, there are so many things I want to do with my life, because I, but I don't do them because I'm afraid what others will think. And so then rat looks at him and says, that's smart because at the end of your life, you want to make sure to get the life approved by everyone around you award. <laughs> and then in the third frame, rat says, oh wait, that doesn't exist. And in the last frame, goat says, well, this is news. And rat says, consider yourself woke, woke. So, uh, I consider myself awakening. I'm not sure if I'm woke yet, but I, you know, and that's in large measure because of this program. I think about uh, how it is today. Life is a, a continuous letting go, just continuous, of letting go till the great let go, you know, and it's, recovery's a narrow gate for me. That's sort of biblical, but that narrow gate if you really work in the program and you continue to let go and trust your higher power, I've let go of friendship relationships that are toxic and don't serve me well anymore. I've had to let go of a lot of things. And I got a life that finally is scripted by, by God and not by me, which is a real relief. Um, a daily question I like to ask myself, is God in the center of everything that I do? That's just what I try to think of. And, um, and I think, you know, that be willing to risk everything you hold precious, that quote, um, for the truth inside of you, um, I think all we need is willingness, just even a little willingness. God will get there if we just open that door, even a crack. You know, it's that willingness. And uh, life keeps happening during recovery. And... Um, my sponsor said, uh, recovery doesn't mean you always feel good. It just means that you've been given the tools to help yourself get well. And so about six years ago, I had a serious, well, chronic back pain. And for whatever reason, maybe my family history, I don't know, but it was very difficult. And at some point, uh, I was kicked into severe anxiety and depression. And I'd gone through divorce, I'd gone through cancer, never had that. And so it was just, here I was in a wonderful marriage, and that's not what he bargained for. And I really, it was a very dark time. I couldn't drive for a while. I didn't want anybody around me. There were four people I wanted around me. My husband, my two adult sons who live in Eugene, who are wonderful gifts in my life, and Debbie, those are the four people that I really could talk to. I couldn't talk to anybody else. Uh, but what I continued to do, and I was telling, is it Jerry? I was telling Jerry earlier, you know, I couldn't, or maybe it was Carol, I don't know. I, 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 I couldn't, let's see, pray myself out of the depression. I needed other help outside help. I did. And I continued to meditate. I continued to put things in my God box. Please take this. I literally got on my knees regularly, but I also got professional help. And I had a good team, a wonderful doctor, a naturopath, you know, and over time, 
it began to ebb, and then there would be some return. And uh, today, I, I don't think it's been completely removed, but I, I feel like I came through that. And what I learned from that is about that, you know, when we talk about doing our gratitude list, it, I had to continue to, I didn't have to, I chose to be grateful for that. You know, not just accepting that, but be grateful for that dark time, which was not an easy thing for me to do. But I, I continued to try and do that, and it also gave me the gift of deepening compassion for my mother. The story was always, poor little Betsy, her mom was gone and she was sad. Well, boy, now I was like, oh my God, my mom was in that place with a breakdown, you know? Oh my God, because I could feel it at a deep level. I had compassion for my first husband and the depression he struggled with after he got sober. And, you know, if someone had told me, I'll take anything, take, take a drink, take a pill, if I want to feel this way, and I hadn't felt that way, and I also f contemplated taking my own life, and that had never entered my mind. So it was a very dark time, but it gave me great compassion and radical acceptance of, of whatever is. So today I look at the transformative power of the 12 steps. In our, um, uh, oh, and I wanted to read something too. This is real important about love, because when I was talking to you about intimacy and healthy love, you know, I thought I was a loving person, and I was, but it wasn't healthy love. The, the, the things that I did to love the, my alcoholic husband, to love my children, was way more about control and me wanting to feel good. And um, so, on page 46, again, in the How Al-Anon Works, it talks about healthy love. Excuse me, at page 84, that was the one I already read. Genuine healthy love isn't self-destructive. It doesn't diminish us or strip us of our identities, nor does it in any way diminish those we love. Love is nourishing. It allows each of us to be more fully ourselves. The enmeshment that characterizes an alcoholic relationship does just the opposite. So that's beautiful to me about, about healthy love. So in... in uh, Page 269 about, we sort of call it the promises, but they're not really the Alan, and from survival to recovery. If we willingly surrender ourselves to the spiritual discipline of the 12 steps, our lives will be transformed. That's what it says. So there it is. Willingly surrender to the spiritual discipline of the 12 steps, our lives will be transformed. And in fact, I think about the steps every day in every aspect of my life. The steps one, two, three, and 11 about, uh, you know, that's really my relationship with my higher power. And step 11, I heard Bill C, an AA speaker, you may have heard him, Bill Cleveland, and he, uh, he said, you know, step 11 is not for extra credit. If you're working the steps, it says prayer and meditation. And that was real powerful for me to hear. So step 11 is a daily practice. We do that together every day, and that's an important part of, of, of the program. And it's a way to continue that deepening relationship with my higher power. 
the fourth, fifth, and the tenth step is a, a way to deepen my awareness of myself. And my sponsor always tells me to do inventories, a full step on whatever problem is showing up, you know. Um, so if there's some issue with, I don't know what it might be, anything, work the steps over it, she says. And it's powerful. It's powerful how that works. Um, step six and seven, I heard someone say this earlier today. Uh, Bill Cleveland said, there's not much in the big book, maybe a couple of paragraphs on steps six and seven, but you'll be doing them the rest of your life. And that has been true for me. Um, the eighth and ninth, just a quick story about amends that is a very powerful one for me. So pay attention to uh, when you get this need to feel like you need to make an amend. I did a lot of amends to my children and over the years, but I did not want to do an amend to my first husband. I just was like, you know, he should make an amend to me, not me to him. So I never really did a formal kind of amend, and about four years ago, I, over the course of several months, I felt this urgency to, to, to do that. The readings that came up in meetings, the things that I just felt like it was time to make an amend. So I worked with my sponsor and a, a counselor that I had. Now I really encourage any of you, if you're going to do amends, wait until you've done the first seven or eight steps before you do that and work closely with a sponsor because it's tricky stuff and I decided I wanted to write him a letter and they would look at what I would wrote and then they'd give me input one time I, in one of the, the drafts I had said I, ho I hope you'll be as happy as I am now and they said no get rid of that one that's not a good sentence and so I did I sent him a letter and the first paragraph was uh, my amends for my part in that collapse and the, the family disease. And I could really understand and be honest about that. The second paragraph was for the gratitude for the wonderful life we'd had, for the, our sons. You know, there was just a lot of joy in that marriage. It wasn't an ugly marriage. It was just an ugly disease. And the third paragraph was genuinely, he was marrying his high school sweetheart in a month, someone I knew from way back, and uh, I was happy for him, and I really wanted to wish him the best for his life. And I mailed that off, and about a week later, I got the uh, letter back from him. Now, again, why am I talking? I mean, mine was Alan on and on, and his was like three sentences or four, but very loving and very kind and very grateful. And two days later, he died, very suddenly. And the power of that story is that, um, you know, calm, doing the program enough and being still enough to listen to the voice, that urgent voice, I, I, I don't know why it just came up then, but God knew. And so to me, that was so powerful in terms of remembering uh, to pay attention to my higher power. And then step 12, um, carrying the message and how I live my life today um, in all my affairs. I used, the, I used this, this program to make a decision about getting a dog. I'm, I'm 71. I just turned 70. 
I really didn't want another dog. I'd been caring for things, people and dogs, all my life, you know. And we had had a dog who died, and eight years had gone by, and I didn't want a dog. And Will wanted a dog. And that's sort of like a binary. He wants one, I don't. And so I worked the program for several weeks, journaled and prayed and... You know, it just became clear to me for a whole lot of reasons that I was ready to get a dog. And I was doing it not for to please other people, not to, you know, please my granddaughter who said, oh, Amma, Amma, get that dog, he's so cute. We were fostering the dog, which was probably part of the issue. <laughs> I fell in love. But anyway, um, on a Sunday morning, I, I said, I, I'm ready for a dog, and, and he... Uh, I looked in the, we write things in our daily readers, and in the daily reader it said, Missy, our other dog, had died eight years before that day that I was granted that decision. To, and it was all my higher power. So I use it in all my affairs. Finally, I want to say that um, I, there are slippery slopes for me today, and there will be. I, I mentioned the hardworking, you know, the, the self-care and slowing down is, is a challenge for me. I, I have a challenge of, of losing myself in relationships. And so I have to work on being fully available to myself, you know. And then the other thing is I'm a good problem solver and I like to figure things out. And I heard someone a couple years ago in a meeting, she came up from California and I'd been around a while and I had never heard that. She said, figuring it out is not a step. Now, I was just amazed because, isn't that great? Because you think, I got to figure this out. Little things, big things, I got to figure this out. I, it's like it takes me right back to those first three steps. You know, I'm powerless, I don't know, I'm going to turn it over. And so that, that's a challenge for me. And if I had gotten what I came here for, I would have shortchanged myself. And finally, I'm because I love our literature, I'm going to read from, from Survival to Recovery, Growing Up in an Alcoholic Home, which I didn't, but it's a wonderful, wonderful book. And it's in the very last section on Gifted with Life. Sometimes life is hard. Sometimes it's beautiful. It helps to acknowledge both as facts. Acceptance does not mean we have to like all of it. It only means we have to realize that, this is a big one, reality is reality. We in Al-Anon are blessed with spiritually conscious, loving companionship on our human journey. We are gifted with life, all life, life with its laughter and its tears, its loneliness and its love, its wisdom and its idiocy, its justice and its cruelty, its family disease of alcoholism and its family recovery of Al-Anon. So today we say yes to life and thank you, Al-Anon, for help with the courage and tenderness to live it. So thank you all for uh, your participation in this event and thank you for being here. I don't know many of you, but I feel like I love all of you and I'm really grateful today for the disease of alcoholism and the gift of recovery. Thank you. <laughs>